Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the guts and it's the glory. A hundred stripes, a hundred stories. It's the Pledge of Allegiance on the 4th of July It's them handwritten letters from home It's them sleepless nights alone It's his newborn baby he left with his wife Mr. Red, White and Blue Lay down his life Mr. Red, Welcome back into another edition of the Frontlines of Fantasy This is episode 2 this week and we are joined by another special guest. He was a surface warfare officer in the United States Navy. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at FF underscore gouge. His name is Eric Ludwig, and he writes for the Fantasy Footballers. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing excellent. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Can't complain. Can't complain. You know, uh, finally getting through some of this coronavirus stuff, and uh, hopefully there's some light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, we are also joined, as always, by Cody Kutzer. You can find him on Twitter at FF. How are you doing tonight? Doing all right, man. You know, some of this stuff that's happening in our in our country right now is kind of weighing weighing heavy on my mind. And just thinking about how this all ties in with with you guys, the fact that, you know, we're able to speak out against that and have an opinion against, you know, with with that kind of stuff. and Everything that's going on is is thanks to guys like yourself and veterans who who help protect those rights. So conversation with everything else going on is for a different time. We're going to focus on, uh, you know, what we have going on right here with you guys. So I'm just excited to, to learn learn a little bit more about you know the military and service and all that stuff and kind of build on what we had last week with uh with kent so eric appreciate you joining us no problem happy to be here yeah so again uh you know if this is the first time listening to the show we decided to start a new podcast we're interviewing you know whether they're analysts we'll also have some just regular fans on of fantasy football but uh mostly veterans and that's what we're looking for we're going to kind of talk about people's experience people's journey you know if they have fantasy football had any relation to it or not if not that's fine too Something similar to some of the other podcasts we've seen where people interview guys who, how they got their start in fantasy, but this is a little bit different talking about a subject that doesn't really get talked about as enough. And we're also partnering with the Wounded Warrior Project to raise money for them, which is an excellent cause. You know, the, some of the stats out there are pretty crazy. They don't just deal with, you know, people who come back and get injured during, you know, wartime or anything like that. They also deal with PTSD and, you know, suicide and depression and all that stuff, which is a real thing. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I was looking up some of the stats the other day and something that I, you know, maybe shame on me. I should have known some of this stuff, but it's just not something that you really talk about that much. But uh, over 20 veterans and service member commit suicide a day and nearly 6,000 commit suicide every single year. And so it's a much bigger issue.
issue than what I think a lot of people understand. So that's something to me that kind of uh, makes this even more worth it to try to help people out and try to, you know, uh, bring awareness to that so we can try to start lowering some of that stuff because it's a little bit... Uh, it's it's a little bit sad to to know that, that that's how it is. Actually, more people have died from suicide um, in the military than actually have died in the war on Iraq. So since 2005. So it's it's just pretty crazy. Um, I don't want it to be all depressing, but uh, that is something that we're really interested in. So if you can, you can go to our Twitter page f underscore authority, and you can donate. Whether it's five bucks, a dollar, whatever it is, anything helps. And we really appreciate it. With that being said. Let's go ahead and just jump into this episode. Talk a little bit with Eric. Now, Eric, you were stationed in Mayport like me, but except for you were a little bit different because, well, I guess you were and you weren't because you were also on the enlisted side. Then you went, uh, then you went to the dark side, as they say, because there's uh, sometimes friction between officers and enlisted. But I guess you probably had a better perspective since you started enlisted and went officer, right? Yeah, definitely. So I actually enlisted in April of 2001. Uh, but I didn't go to boot camp until January 2002. So like 9-11 happened in there. So that, that kind of influenced a lot of my career. But when I enlisted, I enlisted as a, as a nuke electrician. Um, so you, you actually run a nuclear power plant. And the training for that takes a long time. So like the first segment of that is, well, you go to boot camp, get done with that. Then you go to something called A school. And most A schools are relatively short. Like maybe it's uh, a few weeks up to a few months. Our A school was almost six months, and that was kind of like high school level science type stuff and electronics. And then we have a power school, which is more like the, the actual nuclear stuff, the stuff that's classified that, well, I forgot all that stuff anyways. I couldn't even tell you if I remembered, but after that, you go to prototypes. So you actually work on a nuclear power plant, and that's where I, uh, I applied for a, the program. Um, it's a pretty cool program. It takes you, it takes enlisted sailors and send you to school for three years. You get three years to get your college degree. And then after that, you become an officer. So like, like Jocko Wilnick, um, you know, well-known SEAL, he, that's a program that he did. Um, and then after that, I got my commission, became a surface warfare officer, and then went to Mayport. And, and uh, do you want to, so we were actually pretty close together. I think you left like right as I was getting there, uh, went to the McInerney, which is a frigate. Uh, we did two deployments to, uh, to like South America and Central America to do counter narcotics operations. And then after that, I stayed in Mayport, went to the USS Gettysburg. We did a third deployment to the Middle East and we're basically kind of like the, the guardians of the a carrier. Uh, that's what we did there. And luckily, like things had really calmed down by then. Like Iran was still doing, still acting up a little bit, but like the stuff in Iraq had really calmed down from a, a naval perspective. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty interesting time. So for you, I mean, I know for uh, like as, as a, as an enlisted guy, especially in engineering, a lot of times didn't sometimes see eye to eye with our like auxiliary officer or chief engineering officer, depending on, you know, for us, how do you, how was it for you since, you know, you were enlisted, so you could at least understand some of what we went through as the enlisted people, the more of the grunts of the ship who actually do a lot of the work where how was that that uh, relationship for you once you went office i think that it was easier to understand where where enlists are coming from and it's kind of easier to understand like what their concerns might be but they're still like there's still sometimes a clash of personalities because inherently sometimes enlisted don't want to do certain certain things and um and you kind of have to put on a brave face and and you kind of understand what they're saying but you can't you know, you have to still say like, we got, we got to get this done. That's got to be the focus. There can't be really an alternative, but I think it, I think it definitely helped like understanding uh, what was going to be able to, what was going to happen with them and what they're kind of thinking, what their struggles were. And especially it still took a little while, like the, the McInerney, 
I struggled with that a little bit and, and, and some of the enlisted sailors and there's, there's some like personality things, but going to the Gettysburg at that point, I had a little bit more experience and things worked so much better. Like one of the things that kind of shocked me is, is one day I decided, I talked with our, our senior chief and I said, you know, what if, what if we just kind of like interview all the enlisted sailors and kind of like, I'm not really quite certain like what their expectations of me are all the time and, and see like, if there's anything going on that maybe they, um, you know, haven't brought to our, the things that we could help them out with. And I was kind of shocked, like that first question, like, hey, what are your expectations of me? Like enlisted sailors had no idea how to answer that question. Maybe and maybe to a certain extent, it was like awkward to say, well, I expect you as an officer and, and higher in the chain of command to do X, Y and Z. Um, but they, they really didn't have any expectations. And I kind of thought that was a shame because as enlisted sailors be like, hey, you know, I, I could really use like help in, in promoting and, and knowing what I can do to, to further my career and, and things like that. And those things normally didn't come up. But um, the great thing was, it was just by doing that, though, some of the problems like one one guy. So every time you move from one station to another one, uh, the Navy is supposed to compensate you for like your move. And, and uh, it's called a ditty move. Um, this one guy had been haggling with the Navy and, and the paperwork and like months after he had moved to Mayport, he still didn't have his money. And we, we had no idea this is the kind of like issue that the sailor was having. But but hearing that, like right after that interview, we went into our uh, our admin, talked to them. And like within I don't know 15 minutes, we have it straightened out. And he got his money paid like the next paycheck. So that I think that kind of helped, like trying to understand like what's going on with the enlisted mindset. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. While I was on the USS Boone, I had I had two divisional officers or, or two auxiliary officers. Um, one, she was great, and and I think she really felt like that she like neither one of them knew anything about like engineering part of it, right? Anything that we worked on could understand like you know they, they weren't gonna be able to come down and assist us with like you know, troubleshooting something or anything like that. And she understood that she managed us in the correct way. And like, we, we had a really, really good, like, so it, people that don't know, like on, especially on a frigate, you know, engineering department, the engine, the engine men are called the A gang. And so that for us, like we were pretty much in charge of working on everything outside of the gas turbines. We did not touch that stuff. And then there's a couple other things that we didn't mess with, but most everything else was ours. We had four different spaces and we, we were in charge of most of the equipment that was in there. And so for us, like we never got time off. We worked probably 15, 16 hour days, most days. And whenever, when you come into port and when everyone else is leaving, we're still staying on the ship, working on stuff, getting stuff done and everything else. So it was much difficult than a lot of others. And so like our office, like I said, I've had two and one of them, she was great. She understood stuff. She tried to help us out. The other one, he was like, he was a good guy. Like actually, like I'm friends with him today, like on like Facebook or whatever and all this stuff. But like, he was a terrible manager. And like, he was very unorganized. He would come down like in the day, like, cause every morning you'd, you'd muster up and you'd, you'd have a conversation with everything, kind of talk about what you're going to do for that day. And like all of his papers would be like all crumpled up and he, he's, he's really socially awkward and everything else. And like, it just wasn't a great experience. And so every once in a while he'd try to like tell us what to do on something. It's like, dude, you have no idea what you're talking about. You've never touched any of this equipment. Like, just let us do what we're doing. Like, we're like we're trying to do the best job we can. We're, we're going to make you look good. That's the, you know, to me, that's what my mindset always was. Because when I got there, the most of the the you know my chief, my first class, they were all like had been in the Navy for 15, 16, 17, 18 years. Really salty, you know, dog sailors as they call them, and they were they were much more old school compared to probably what it is now. And that's how I got to learn a lot of respect because for me, I know one time I mouthed off to my first class and he threw me on the ground 
And for a lot of people, they may like think that that's a big deal. To me, it didn't bother me at all. Like I, I like I was like, okay, don't ever do that again. Log that away. And uh, it's just different. But my point is, is, is that I think it makes a big difference in the military how your officers deal with you and how they interact with you and how they manage. To that point, I think um, it, it's kind of weird understanding from the outside perspective. But as a junior, when you go to the ship, like you don't know anything. There's very little training that you get going there. And like, luckily I had, I had been prior enlisted. So like some things like kind of made sense. And and so I actually started off in engineering as well. And, and like, you, you know, talking about the hours, like I remember, I still remember like it being so special if I could go home and there was still like the sun out, like it was, it almost never happened. So it was like special each time. And like trying to trying to learn like a certain space, so engineering to a certain degree, trying to learn like the admin that you have to do, trying to learn some of the paperwork that you have to do. And on top of that, your your kind of expectation is that you learn how to drive the ship. And so you're on the bridge. It's almost like you have like three or four different jobs. It's not much preparation to get there. So you're kind of thrown, to, they say like being thrown to the wolves. That's kind of how it is. And you kind of have to like find your way and figure out like how your personality can best enable the the enlisted um personnel in your in your division and it's a tough it's it's really struggle i'd say it took me a good like two two and a half years to figure it out and i had a little bit of a a head start because i was prior enlisted that makes you know that makes sense too and i know i i think for like i get think some of the disconnect not well between officer and enlisted sometimes was that like we always kind of viewed you guys up in the penthouse because you guys had your own ward room and all that stuff and um and all that kind of stuff so i understand so that but like i said there was quite a few officers that were like you know, normal every day. Like they weren't, they, they, they tried to connect with us and they would come down and BS with us. And we, you know, and so, but then there was a couple that certainly were not that way and we're not. And, and, and probably at times we're a little bit too stuck up, but um, I, I guess what, what is it like, I guess, like in, cause there's certain things that obviously I have no idea about, like, you know, just like the wardroom and all that kind of stuff. Like, what is that like? Uh, do you guys, you know, interact every day or, um, and how, what is that day-to-day life like? Yeah. So I, I think it's much more uh, formal than the enlisted life. Like, you know, so on, on the enlisted Mastex, you know, you, you get your meal, you sit down, you know, there, there's really not much formality to it. Like when you go into the wardroom, you have to actually ask permission from like the, the highest ranking officer in there to like sit down to, you know, start your meal. And you, you kind of, you get the same food that the enlisted, it's not like our food is any better, but you like have menus that you like write out what you're, what you uh, want for dinner and stuff like that. So things are same food and everything like that, but things are like way more formal. Um, before you get up, you ask permission to, uh, to get up from the senior officer. So yeah, just a lot more formality. Um, and you know, it's, it's like any group there's, there were officers I got along with like really well. And there are officers I, I didn't, I can't stand to like, to this day, it's just kind of the, the, I don't know what it is, but like enlisted, I, I never really had a problem with any enlisted ever. Uh, but, but like officers are kind of a different breed sometimes and maybe a little bit of entitlement gets in there with some of them. But, you know, it's like it's like any population. You get good ones, you get bad ones. See, I'm learning stuff, too. I never knew that. That's that's I guess it makes sense on how that is. But like, that's crazy. Like, uh, that'd be why I don't know. Like, I'm, I, I, see, I don't think I could ever be an officer. Cause I don't think I, can, I don't think I could ask to get up, for, <laughs> ask permission to get up to, to, you know. So I don't know. That's but that's that is crazy. I guess, you know, learn stuff uh, myself. So, yeah. How so? For you, you you got done with school and everything else, and then is it you just go straight to a ship um, after you get done? Like um, once you got done with college and everything else, or how does that work? What is that transition like? 
Yeah, so there, there wasn't like another boot camp or anything like that. Um, the only other officer training I had is is once I got accepted into stage 21, but before I went to college, they do like this. It, it was it was really hard to explain. I think part of it was because like that program, stage 21, wasn't very well funded. There was only a few people that went through it each year um, before the war. But once 9-11 happened, they needed more officers. So they started getting more people. They kind of like decided, well, we need to have some kind of formalized training. So they created this officer training thing um, that was supposed to be kind of like boot camp a little bit. That, but the issue is, and like I was a very junior sailor, but some of the people that were going through there were, were very senior. So it was kind of like literally having like a chief couldn't be too tough on the chief or, you know, anything like that. So we had first classes and chiefs are going through it. So like they couldn't be too tough on us, but it was supposed to be kind of like a boot camp. But the thing that people don't realize is boot camp is kind of a game. Like I don't know if you if you realize that, but like going there, you're you're so scared at first. That first night, I'll never forget like sitting there and thinking, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? And like everybody has that thought and it's hard to explain it. It's one of those things like you kind of need to be there to understand it. But after a while, that's kind of a game and things things like you can play like it's serious, but you kind of know it's not serious too. But with that like little training before we went to college, like it wasn't very serious at all. And it was kind of a good time and um, kind of honestly kind of a little bit of a waste of time. Like I don't I didn't really learn anything there and anything I did learn that would have been useful. Like you, you go to college for three years after that. So you kind of forget that stuff. But, you know, it wasn't too formal. Didn't learn a whole lot. Like going through college, I did take ROTC classes. But again, like, you know, a lot of stuff that you learn, you've kind of learned already just going through boot camp and being enlisted. So there wasn't really very much formal training, like going out to the ship. So like going out to the ship, like, you know, even with my, my experience and stuff like that, there was, there was, there was admin. I didn't understand at all. And, you know, they did teach us like how to do evaluations and stuff like that, but there's still like nuances when you're writing evaluations that, that we didn't know. So it's just kind of crazy what you expect these people to do without very much training. So so, yeah, it's definitely a pretty steep learning curve. Eric, did you know that you that you always wanted to go and to the to the officer side, or was that like how does how does that work? Is that something that you pursued? Is that something that told like did someone tell you that's something you should look into? Like how did how did that come about? Even going through like a school and power school, they always have like a, a class leader, and I always kind of want to be in in the leadership position and just make sure that things ran smoothly. And I and I kind of realized pretty early on. Um, that I could probably affect more change as, as an officer than enlisted, right? At least I kind of thought that. Um, and so that's that's true and not true. It, in, in the beginning, it's pretty hard to really uh, – frankly, they don't trust junior officers enough to have them have much influence over the, the uh, junior enlisted and, and senior enlisted. Um, but it takes about like three or four years before you can really have that influence. But I always, always knew that I wanted to be there for the enlisted sailors and do as much as I could. And part of it was we had some really good officers in the, the nuke field. I, I wasn't exposed to a whole lot, but the ones that we had were really good. So I, I kind of thought that they were, they were pretty awesome, too. Whenever you guys – so when you got to the ship and you were on deployment and everything, I was like, what was a, a day-to-day life for you? Because um, you were – I mean, you pretty much stayed up on the bridge, right, and everything else, and that, that's kind of one of your main jobs. Is that correct? As a surface warfare officer? Yeah, so it changed quite a bit from my first ship to the second ship. So the first ship um, – you know the the name of the game as as a as a new officer is um, getting officer of the deck qualified. So you spend a whole lot of time on the bridge and actually driving the ship. And so 
on the, the McInerney when I did those um, deployments to uh, South America and Central America. Most of my time was, a lot of my time was spent on the bridge. I'd be up there for like, especially us, we were a little bit shorthanded. So I'd be up there for at least eight hours a day. And we had like some crazy watch rotation where like, that I don't know why our executive officer decided they wanted to kind of play with the schedule. So like if you were on the bridge from like 12 PM to 4 PM, then you would also be on the bridge from 12 AM to 4 AM. And then anytime we had like a, a port break or something like that, then we'd shift it. So a different watch team would have that shift. And that was pretty brutal because it's not like you're able to sleep like from that 12 AM to 4 AM. You, you could sleep for a couple hours, but then you had to be up for muster and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, really start the day off and then hopefully get a little bit of sleep before you had the next watch. Like it was a really weird rotation. Um, so yeah, a lot of my time was, was doing that. And then um, the other time was, was mostly spent with uh, admin type stuff and, you know, making sure that like maintenance was getting done and stuff like that. But really it was more like a learning experience. It wasn't so much leading anything because you're so junior, you don't have a lot of power over anything. It's mostly like learning all the, all the paperwork, all the admin learning how to drive the ship, learning about um, other ships and weapons capabilities. Um, the, th- the next one was quite different. So I went to school to be a fire control officer. We, we were the guys that, like, if there's an incoming missile, we have missiles that can shoot down those incoming missiles. Uh, we learned to do that. And our ship in particular became what's called the MRADC, so it was Maritime Regional Air Defense Commander. So, like, we had to have knowledge of the entire airspace over the Middle East while we were there, and our, our primary mission was to, was to protect the carrier. So we're always with uh, the George Washington. And, um, yeah, that, that was quite a bit different. And so I, I had watch from, like, I think it was – no, I'm blanking on it. It was something weird. It was, like, 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. Because they, they figured, like, if there was going to be an attack, it'd be in the early morning hours. And it, we, we had the same watch every single day. So you can kind of get used to traffic patterns and see when something was a little bit unusual. So, um and then, and then after that, you know, did some admin and, and that was pretty much it. So, um, yeah, com- completely different from, from one, um, one ship to the next. And with that, I should, I should add, so that I didn't do anything on the bridge on the Gettysburg. That was all in what's called combat or a combat information center. So like, if you see movies, I, I know you guys know, but if you see movies and there's like a dark room with all, a bunch of radars, that's where I stood my watch. Was it hard not to fall asleep? Oh, my God. <laughs> so I never drank coffee until that deployment. Um, and then between it being cold in combat, because we were in the Middle East, but it was still like 65 degrees maybe in combat. So I drink coffee to stay warm and stay awake. And I remember this one time, it sounds so weird, but the way the radar worked, you'd have like these sweets. So you'd see like the circle going around. And I, I like must have like daydreamed or something like that i must have fallen asleep and i had this image in my head of the exo coming out of the radar screen and starting to yell at me and so i, I like woke up from that I'm like oh that's just weird i need to stand up like that was <laughs> so yeah there were definitely some nights it was pretty uh <laughs> pretty rough in there it's all dark and stuff like that so it can be it can be pretty tough i'm sure it's a little cool in there too right because of all the radar and everything that's in there yeah so you have to keep all the electronics really cool so the ac pretty much pumps in there so like the bridge was always hot, you know, super hot. Middle East, South America, Central America was always just burning up there. The AC couldn't keep up with it. But the AC in combat, it's kind of the middle of the ship, and it was it was just freezing in there. I'd wear a coat. So it's like the Middle East, and I'm wearing a coat. It's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. I, I do remember, like, as, like, in port, like, whenever we stand watch, like, we kind of go around and check a bunch of other stuff. Uh, we have, like, a checklist and everything we're supposed to check. And I remember any time, because you go up to the bridge, and, like, at night when no one was up there, 
uh, when you're on duty and stuff like that, when you're just, you know, in home port or whatever. And like, just it, it always felt like a different world whenever you were up on the bridge because like we never go up there ever. And um, so like when you just walk up there, you kind of look out at everything and it just like seemed like a completely different world for us because uh, all I ever saw was, you know, the bilge and uh, stuff like that, but or or CCOS. But um, yeah, that's that's uh, completely uh different um in terms of like when you guys when you guys did on deployment and you guys went to go out were you guys i I assume you guys probably weren't allowed to get as crazy as we got i would assume you guys probably had to be a little more professional it it was pretty much like the same rules and there were definitely like situations that were um a little bit more restrictive than than others um like i know we went to the middle east and it it wasn't our ship there was another ship it might have been the george washington i can't remember but they had they had an incident where like one of the sailors had broken a window of a store or something like that, and so like th- there was almost like a lockdown of the entire because of that one ship. Like all the other ships that were in the Middle East, like they knew they couldn't have another incident like that, so they really locked us down. Like we couldn't, so we couldn't drink, you know, in the in the three days we went out, and you know, you can you can kind of tell when it's a little bit more tense, and you can honestly like some places you go to, and you can kind of like let loose a little bit, it's more a little bit more like maybe westernized and there are some places like, all right, you know, I want to, I want to keep it a little bit in check and have my, you could have a good time, but you want to keep your wits about you at the same time, especially like South America. Like some, some of those cities were awesome, but some of them were like, yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I need to be able to kind of be aware of my surroundings here. I wish I could say we, we were not that smart. We were like cavemen and just went out and just got, <laughs> got shithoused every, every, every time we went. And I, I actually did pretty good. Um, cause I went on two deployments. I did, I pretty much did the same thing. Like on the first deployment, we went out and did drug ops. Um, we actually seized, I think it was at the time, it was the most, it was the most, it was the biggest seize, um, of cocaine ever in the, um, in the United States history. We seized like 18 tons of cocaine, um, on our employment. And then after that, we went on the med cruise and we went around, we went to like Scotland and France and Italy and Spain and a bunch of other places. But I do know like the entire deployment, I, the one thing, well, two things I, well, one thing I really regretted was not, uh, taking more pictures and being more touristy about it. And like, cause like, you know, how, when are you ever going to get to go over there? But I was 20, 21, you know, I wasn't worried about that. You're on deployment. As soon as you hit a port and you're able to go out, you went out and you got drunk and it wasn't a healthy lifestyle. I'll say that, but, uh, I did pretty good about never getting in trouble, except for I did get in trouble once while I was on deployment and me and my first class, we decided to have a drinking contest and I thought I could out drink him, which was a terrible idea, but like, like, like drink faster than him. And <laughs> we were doing vodka and Red Bull and I kept losing, uh, over and over and <laughs> over again, like just barely losing. And next thing I know, that's the last thing I remember until I wake up the next morning and my face is all cut up and I have duty that next day. And I'm like an hour late to go to CCOS. I didn't muster in the morning and I look like just a bag of smashed assholes. Right. And I go walking into CCOS and, um, my, it wasn't my chief. It was one of, but one of the chiefs that was on duty was in there and was like, what the fuck steel you (laughs) shit. What happened? What do you know what you did last night? And I'm like, no, I have no idea. I "I don't remember anything. It's the last thing I remember. And he's like, well, your entire division cannot go out until they saw sort over this out. I'm like, what are you talking about? What happened? And so I had to go find somebody and they told me. So basically what happened was I was, so I, I was so drunk, I guess I was sitting there at the bar and I fell over and smashed the table. And so they, they had to pick me up and they, they had to carry me. It was two miles away. Well, at first they put me in a cab and I guess I threw up. Don't remember any of this. 
And so they, they threw me in the cab and they get me, finally get me back to the ship. And then, you know, on the frigate, aft steering is the back of the ship and they're trying to shove me down into aft steering. And at, at that very moment, our captain and our XO were walking onto the ship. <laughs> they screamed, Hey, let go of him. Look, what are you doing? So they let me go and I just oh, face plant right into non skid. And, um, so I don't remember any of this. And so they, they, you know, they tell me, take me to medical. And I guess I'm screaming, I'm cussing at, at, our, at our medical, you know, get off me. Don't you fucking touch me, blah, blah, blah. You know, just going, losing my mind. Don't remember any of it. Finally, they, they get me all patched up and they put me to bed. That's I don't remember any of this. So <clears throat> I, I didn't get in like any major trouble or anything. Basically, I just couldn't go out. It just so happened to be the last port that we were hitting before we were going home. So it really wasn't that big of a deal. Other than the fact that I really wanted, we were in Italy and I really wanted to see like Rome and everything. Cause we were right at Naples. And, um, but yeah, that was, and then, so of course me and my big mouth where I have to like run my mouth all the time. Um, they were, you know, they were, they were mad at me or whatever. And I was like, Oh, whatever. You know, it's not that big of a deal. I don't care. Oh, you don't care. Right? You're going to stand two watches. I don't care. I'll stand all the watches. Give me all the watches. I'll stand all the watches the rest of the day. They gave me all the watches for the rest of the day, and that was the worst day of my life. I was so hungover. I hated my life. Yeah, I, I did. Um, didn't quite do it up like that that bad, but I remember there was this one <laughs> and we were drinking like rum. So that was part of it, like drinking this really good rum, and but we also had cigars. And the next day, it was like during a Tiger cruise. So during a Tiger cruise, you can have like family aboard and stuff like that, and they kind of like cruise around the ship for a few days. And so my uh, my brother in law was on on thing. So we're you're doing shots of rum and and smoking cigars and stuff like that. And the next day, I just remember, I I felt awful. I felt it was like green. It wasn't even seasick. I was just like, let me just get through this day. That was a that was pretty rough. But one of my least favorite things that I ever did was the the watch that you never wanted to have because you always have like somebody checking like IDs as as people come back checking IDs and making sure that everybody actually gets back to the ship at night. And so you're, you're stone sober, but everybody coming up is just drunk. And, and a lot of people are like beyond like belligerent drunk. And you're trying to, you're trying to like, you know, and of course they get sometimes aggressive and something. And you just, you're just like, please God, just go to bed. Just go to bed. Don't say anything. Just go to bed. And, you know, and then there's always like the tension, like, did everybody come back? Did everybody come back? And it was like standing that watch when everybody was due back on the ship was the absolute worst. It was never a good time. I absolutely hated it. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I know. That's probably, yeah, I, I'm sure we did. Cause I'm, yeah. I, cause I do remember that you'd come back and you start talking shit to everybody that was, you know, standing on the, you know, quarter deck and everything else. And I can imagine that. Cause I, I remember you see when we were on duty. And, you know, you're, you go outside at the end of the night when everybody's starting to come back, too, and they're all like, you just, like, get away from me, shut up, you're an idiot, whatever, you know. But I, I totally get that, yeah. That's, that's all. I, I can it's like everybody, Everybody's that freaking out, and, and then you got all these drunks just hanging, and they won't, they just will not go to bed. Like, they just want to keep on going. Oh, I was, hated that. <laughs> yeah, I got, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I did a lot of, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, I get it, I get it. Yeah, there I mean, but that's but that's the kind of the sad thing because I mean, there's not. You would think that you're overseas, you're traveling, and that's one of the reasons I joined was to be able to travel. And you would think that you'd want to like actually experience the like traveling part of it and like going out and seeing a different culture and all this stuff. But no, the first thing that you just do, like literally, <laughs> my first day on the ship, right? So when I, I was in, I did A school, and as soon as I got done with A school, 
I could, it was ridiculous. They sent me to a sea school. I'd never even been on a ship, never seen a ship, never stepped foot on one. They sent me to a sea school and there's and like people in the sea, the sea school were chiefs and first class and second classes. And here's Johnny boot camp just walking into this place. I have no idea. I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. I ended up passing it. But anyway, so I met up with my ship and they were in Panama on deployment and they had like two months left. So I did like two and a you know, quarter uh, deployments. And, but they, so they're, they fly in and the first day they're like, you're going out with us. And I'm like, I don't even know these people. I like, I am freaking out. I'm in the Navy and I, you know, I'm in Panama and all this stuff. So everything's like spinning. I have no idea. I've heard all these stories from these chiefs in first class about how horrible it's going to be and how much they're going to fuck with me. Cause you're an A gang and everything else and all this stuff. And so like, I'm freaking out. So I'm like, okay, whatever you say, let's do it. And the first, the first night they're like, we're going to a whorehouse. I'm like, excuse me. I am 19 years old. I don't know what that is. <laughs> you know, they don't have those in the States. And yeah, that was, that was my first night on a ship. And uh, yeah, that is, uh, that was my indoctrination into being into a gang. So one of the, one of the things there, there's a distinct difference between like being a single male on deployment and then like, being married and so what i what i kind of discovered is that i did not i was married when when wherever we we're on deployments so i discovered like the best thing to do was to hook up with like people also people that were married and older and like there's there's a different like level of crazy with that but like still you know there's a couple times i went out with some single guys and you know we ended up in this one place because in panama it's really weird because like the, these taxi cabs come to pick you up at the pier and they, they take you into Panama, but they're they're kind of, I suspect, like paid or get some kind of kickback. Like if they take sailors to like whorehouses, whatever it is. So like this one time, me and a buddy, like we wanted a massage, but like a legitimate massage. Now, like uh-huh. you, you think like in the States, it's pretty easy to go massage. Not a happy ending. Like you, you, it's almost impossible to find. And, and so we asked for this and maybe maybe that was a mistake. And they take us to this place. And I'll never forget this. We're sitting in a little room and there's like maybe like 12 like leather chairs, whatever surrounding this room and these girls start coming in and they literally have a number like on their waist or whatever and they do like little turn and stuff like that and, like oh you want that one like no man i just want i just want a massage like get me out of here this is not what i want at all that was really that was really awkward super awkward and it was, yeah it was crazy yeah <laughs> yeah because that's so how it we, is we did, we did eventually find so what we did for massage they had this really nice hotel in Panama and they had like a spa. So like that place was legit. So we're able to do that and get like a, a real massage. But like, yeah, that first, that first attempt was a big fail. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, cause after, <laughs> so then, cause like the next time we went out too, we were there for four days. And so we go to a, we go to a casino and so we go there and you're, you're hanging out, you're gambling, whatever. And like, like you're sitting there and like girls will just come up to you and like, they're like, they act like they're just, you know, like they just want to talk, whatever. So you start talking, whatever. And they're hanging out and like, oh, you want to buy me a drink? And you buy them a drink. And you're thinking like just a normal thing. And then all of a sudden they're like, so uh, it's $100 a night. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, I was, <laughs> what is going on here? But that's how it is there. It's, 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 it's a little bit different for sure. Like it's, uh, it was definitely culture shock. Like, okay, this is, this is the Navy. All right. <laughs> Let's do this. It's this weird thing that like Colombia like exports, and by the way, most of them are not like ugly, like whatever. They're, they're actually beautiful, and a lot of them are Colombian. It's it's really it's just it's just a different world. Like I can't believe this. Well, so because from what I, I mean, what they would tell me is that I guess is that because Panama is such a huge port for the Navy that 
that like women come from like Brazil and Colombia and they come from all around to come there for that. And so it's different though, because like people think of like, cause they usually go on vacation, like Mexico or like Cancun or, or all those places. Like when you go to like somewhere like Panama, it's not really so much of a, it's not as much of a destination, uh, you know, for, for a lot of other places are. And, but it is very cheap to go there. Like when I was there, like it was like, it was like 50 cents, 75 cents, something like that for a beer. It you know, for a steak dinner, it was like, like a really nice steak dinner. It was like six, seven, eight, nine bucks, something like that. And if you were to tip like, like 10 bucks, like you, something you normally would hear, like you, you would have thought you just gave them a hundred bucks. Um, but so it, it was nice going out down there because you could go out and have a really good time and not spend very much money. And especially as an enlisted person, especially as like a fireman, uh, it was nice because uh, your money didn't fly out the window really quick because it was really because like whenever we did the med cruise and the euro and the pound is so expensive over there. So it was more than what the dollar was. Your money flew very quickly. So you had to uh, not live it up as much while you're over there. But when you're in Mexico and all those other places over there, it was a lot easier to actually go out and have a good time. Yeah, Panama spoiled me a little bit. Like there's this there's this economic term called anchoring. So like if you pay a certain price, you you do not want to pay any more than that anywhere else. And I remember in Panama, like we went to this movie and it was like four or five bucks. So in my mind, all movies should be like four or five bucks. And like to pay what we have to, what, 12 bucks to see a movie or whatever it is or more. Like that's just outrageous to me to this day. No, I, yeah, no, I can, I, I, I can definitely see that. So, yeah, I mean, we, we did. I remember that whenever we were, we actually went out into town, like further and deeper into town. It was less out of the touristy part of it. So that was kind of cool. That was probably pretty much the only time that we actually traveled anywhere that I probably actually went and saw anything of like any significance before, because other than that, that was it. Uh, did you ever go to Scotland? Cause we went to, it was right outside of Glasgow, Scotland twice on deployment when we were over there. And that place was absolutely just beautiful. Huh. No, we never went to Scotland. We, we went to um, Portsmouth, England and I wouldn't say beautiful, but it was like, like England's kind of a strange place. It was, it was a pretty fun time. Um, and it was cool. And we did some cool things, but like, one night now of course i had duty one night like they they will just if they don't have like a um a holiday they'll just make one they call it a bank holiday and like it was crazy like the city erupted and it was kind of like new orleans and like i forgot this story until just now so like people would dress up and they would go out in like costumes and stuff like that so and, and it was like, so it was kind of like almost like Mardi Gras with costumes, or whatever. And I remember seeing this, this one dude was dressed up as a nurse and he, he got into like a drunken fight with this girl and he tried to kick this girl and he did it right in front of some English police. So like immediately the, they take this guy and throw him into the paddy wagon. And I'm just thinking this dude's going to jail dressed up as a nurse. It was one of the most ridiculous things I've, I've seen. I forgot that story until just now. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, we never went to we, we never went to well we never went to England, but so we went to Scotland twice. It was the first place we went to and the last place we went to before we went home. You pull in the the pier or the the pier that you pull into, like it doesn't even look like our ship would fit, like but you pull in like a cove and like a huge like green almost mountain surrounds you, and like it is like the most beautiful thing ever. Something out you'd see like on TV or something like that. Um, but it, it that was probably the nicest, or at least just in terms of like scenery, was probably the nicest place ever. There was like a bunch of rocks coming out of the water, like for out, you know, further out and everything else. Like it, it was, a, it was a pretty cool place. But I do remember there as well, and we, there was some local females that were out there on the town, and we tried to like you know act like we're American and we're badass, and you know we can out drink them, and we lost to these girls, and they they put us to shame. 
and we had to go back and so in Scotland, like there, like we were allowed to like um, you know, do like an overnight shit and stay out overnight. So we got a hotel room and everything else. And this was like probably three o'clock in the afternoon. So we had to go back to the ship or not back to the ship, back to our hotel room. We slept for like two or three hours and got up and went back out. But yeah, that was. So what happens is, you know, you have, you develop a certain tolerance and you kind of know what your tolerance is. And then you go on deployment. So like, you know, you might be out at sea for two, three weeks or whatever it is. And your to- your tolerance just kind of goes away. So, yeah, any kind of drinking games after you've been out at sea for a while, like a really bad idea because your tolerance is nowhere near what you think it is. Yeah. Well, it's so like alcohol over there, too, is not nearly it's not it's not as like glorified as it is here either. Like they like legal drinking age is 18. People start drinking much earlier. Um, most like a lot of these bars stay open like all day. If they do close, it's for a couple of hours to like clean and then they open back up. Like it's just kind of a different mindset for us because like I know like you know, when you're growing up 18, 19 years old, you know, like you're, you're still legal, right? And you're not allowed to drink and everything else. So for them, it's a little bit different, but I just remember doing that and we, we did shots of, well, first we're like, we're like, they were like, well, what do you want to drink? And we're like, yeah, we're going to, let's do Jack. Like, you know, so some real, they're like, they're like, you know, that's not manly at all. Like let's do Jameson. And so I was like, okay, let's do that. And it was not a fun experience because they, 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 they uh, kicked her ass. I don't know why you're over there. Did you ever try Strongbow? It's a I cider beer. Like an, it's a cider, isn't it? Because that yeah, was my yeah. first so experience. England, yeah. And over there, like, because I know we'd ask the people, like, well, what, what should we drink over here? Because we want to try some, like, you know, some local type of type, type of beer and stuff like that. And everyone was like, dude, you got to try Strongbow. You got to try Strongbow. And we're like, we're like, what is it? And they're like, it's cider beer. And this was like well before like the cider beer craze that like happened a few years ago. And so I was like, okay, we can drink this. Or you drink it and it's like, it's not like super sweet, but it's like got a really good flavor and everything. And, but you're thinking that, oh, yeah, I can down this stuff. Like this stuff's nothing. Like you, so you're just pounding these things and sitting there and thinking nothing about it. But the, it's really like seven or 8% alcohol. And so by the time we got up, like we were feeling pretty, pretty strong at that point. <laughs> And it really catches up to, but it's delicious. Like I love that stuff. It's really good, especially over there. Anyways, the you know the whole military is not about drinking. Okay, there's there's more to it than that. Yeah, I, I mean, I could I feel like I could handle this. Doesn't seem, doesn't seem that bad. There there's a there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. Because um, I I remember on deployment like so when you're out to sea you have to have, you have like certain certain um, pieces of equipment that or at least a minimum piece of equipment up at all times because like on a frigate for example you have four diesel generators. And I think you have to have two of them up at all time while you're on deployment. It might be higher than that, might, but um, but we lost two two for our two diesels on deployment, and we had to do all this maintenance and all this repairs to them. And we basically stayed up for two days straight. We weren't allowed to leave Ox Two because it was two and three diesel, and they brought us food down and paper plates, and that's how we ate. And if you're you're allowed to take a nap in Ox Two. But we had to stay down there because we had to get the diesels back up because we were, you know, on deployment. There was certainly a lot of uh, the whole the phrase of work hard, play hard uh, definitely was in play for us. Yeah, it always seems like to happen where like you're so you're on deployment. And most of it, honestly, is, is pretty boring. And then there's there's periods of just like everything goes wrong and it's just it's super hard work, everything back. And like especially when we were on the, the um, when I was on the Gettysburg. If we had didn't go down, that was like spy radar, and that was you know missiles and things like that. And that was not only protecting our ship, but protecting the carrier. So that that was a huge deal. If anything broke, like we really had to work hard to get that fixed as soon as possible. Um, so same type of thing. And I know those diesels are are brutal, um, especially as they're aging on the um, on the frigates. Those things 
we're constantly breaking down and, and a ton of maintenance to keep up. But there's, yeah. there's cool things about deployments too. I did like Spain. I was able to go on a, like a wine tasting tour and go into the Spanish country. And that at least was like contained and, and fairly mellow um, and stuff like that. Was, but that was really cool. And like, um, I went to Naples as well. So it's, it's like what, like an hour, hour and a half train ride to Rome. And Rome was like the most amazing place I think I've ever been. That was, that was super cool. So don't tell me that. Yeah, it was, it was cool seeing those sites. Yeah, can we can we hear more? Can we hear more? Gotta about get there. Gotta get there. I was so mad. Like that was the that was the one place we all talked about. Like, okay, we're going to dedicate a day. It's going to be Rome, and we're going to de- we're not going to get drunk. We're actually going to go out. We're going to see everything, and we're going to do everything. And so the first night we were there, we we're allowed to go out, but we didn't get there till later. Like, and it was like four or five, so obviously there wasn't going to be enough time for us to go. And then we had to stay and watch. And then the next day, we we're all we're going to go. And I was not able to go. So all of them got to go. I had to stay on the ship and they all came back like, oh man, you totally missed it. The Coliseum was absolutely amazing. All this stuff. And I'm like, I hate all of you. It's, it sucks. So that was like the one place I was actually looking for. Cause everywhere else we went to like Toulon, France. Um, we went to Rota, Spain a couple of times. Um, I can't remember everywhere else we went. There was a couple other places we went to, but, um, but yeah, so that was like the one place that I was really looking forward to. <laughs> wasn't well, able to go. So isn't enough. Like it, for Rome, you need a good four or five days. There's just too much to see there. Like I didn't, I didn't see nearly everything I wanted to. And even like some of the stuff that we saw, like the Coliseum, like took a bus there, looked at it for a little while, and like took off so we could see other stuff. So it's not like we're able to spend much time in any place. I would, I, I. Yeah, I need to go back. I want to spend at least four or five days in Rome alone. No, for sure, for sure. So, so I guess I guess kind of wrapping up the conversation a little bit, at least on this. What made you decide to want to get out? And um, whenever you did, a big part of it was so so like finishing up with the Gettysburg. I was I was up for shore duty this time, and so what they what they do, I'm sure it's similar with with enlisted, is they like give you a list of like I don't know fifty or sixty different job openings that there are and say, okay, what are your, what are your top, they ask you to list your top 20. Um, but you're able to have a, a, a conversation with your captain and say, well, you know, I listed these 20, but I'm, I'm really actually okay with these top eight. I don't really want to do anything else. So they work with you in that way. And um, one of the things that was on this list was recruiting in Buffalo and I'm from Buffalo. So, you know, I told my wife about this, which is probably a mistake. And she's like, oh, that'd be amazing to go back to Buffalo and all this kind of stuff. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll put Buffalo in my top 10. So I literally put Buffalo 10th. And uh, I'm sure I'm the only guy, you know, coming up for that slate that put Buffalo anywhere near their top 10. So they said, you got it. So they sent me to Buffalo. And so like going back to your hometown, it's one thing to leave it the first time when you're initially joining the Navy, but to leave your hometown a second time is tough. Plus, we had just had my um, my my daughter, my my firstborn, was born while we were on deployment on the with the Gettysburg, um, but my son was born in Buffalo. So now I have two little kids, and I'm I'm facing you know five years of um, sea duty with a lot of deployments in between those, and and having I think I think my daughter was like you know two and a son who's who's a few months old, like you know, and being in my hometown, it was just like all right, that's it, that's enough there, you know done my time and stuff like that but just you know facing those five more years of sea duty with you know six month deployments and and you know i I, it was one thing to leave my wife but to leave like two little kids would have been just brutal yeah i mean that is one aspect of the military that is is super tough is is being on deployment and being away from your family and you know even not even so you know not even 
wife and kids would be something totally different. Like that would be uh, brutal, especially like a newborn or anything like that. Cause you're, I mean, you're talking about a substantial amount of time, like, you know, six to eight months is a very long time to be away, especially from a kid. Uh, you know, you miss a lot of stuff, you know, you may miss big, big moments of their life, their first step talking and all this stuff. And, you know, you come back, you've been gone for six to eight months. That's a long time. And so those are certain aspects that you really weigh tough. And that's why, like, I mean, the, the divorce rate in the military is like 75% or something like that, because it's, it's just brutal. And it's tough, too, because when you're out to sea, like, it's not like, you know, you get to, you know, you have an argument and you get to, you're going to be able to go home and talk it over when you get home and, like, you know, work through it. When you're on deployment, you're out, you know, it, it's tough. Like, there's not, especially back then, where your basic communication was email and, and stuff like that. And the Internet wasn't great anyway. And so it, it was definitely much harder. And I wasn't, you know, married at the time. I, you know, I dated a girl while I was in, but that was about it. But it's still, it, it's tough because you can't sit there. And like I would say that you talk to people that, you know, had been in for 15, you know, 18 years or whatever, and they have a wife, they have kids. And you can see how much it like, you know, play, took, t- takes a toll on you because, you know, you get in a fight with somebody or they're upset or, you know, and it does happen, you know, cheating and all that stuff that happens in the military. And it's, it can like wreck you because there's nothing you can do. You're, you're kind of isolated in, in a sense of, you can't do anything about it and you feel kind of hopeless because you can't go out and like, you know, it's not like you can just go home and like talk it over or have a conversation. Like you're stuck there. You're not going anywhere. Right. And so it, it, it is, it is brutal uh, in that sense as well. So I, I think that is probably one of the biggest reasons why people end up getting out is because of that, because of how hard it is on a relationship. Yeah. It's, it's easy to like lose context when you're, when you're emailing back and forth, like it's so easy to lose any kind of context and like on a ship, you don't really have – we had a phone, but it was always broken. So you couldn't, like, call home or anything like that unless there's, like, emergencies. We had a, a satellite phone you could use. Um, but, you know, those are kind of extreme circumstances then. And and so now you're only talking to your, your wife, whatever, like, once every few weeks when you pull into port and, you know, connections are terrible and all this stuff. It's just, it's just tough. And I saw, like, a lot of enlisted sailors that, you know, they were having problems at home or, like, you know, their, their wife was draining bank accounts or – not paying bills and there's problems and there's really so little that they could do. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, we were lucky. I mean, I don't remember our phones being down that much. We were had them, but you had to have like a calling card to be able to do it. And so like, you couldn't talk for very long. It's not like you're going to sit there and have a 30 minute conversation. You're, and there's usually five or six people waiting uh, to, to use the phone. So if you're able to use it and you get in line because you don't want to wait that long because time is precious because you basically, when you're on deployment, you work all day, you do your job, you do all the stuff you're supposed to do. If you don't have watch, and if you stand at night watch, you try to go to bed so you can get a little bit of sleep in between because then you're going to be up for another four hours to stand watch. And then usually, but if you stand like a night watch, by the time you go to bed, you're going to get maybe a couple hours. You're going to have to wake right back up because you have to be up at, I don't know, 6 a.m., something like that to get up, eat breakfast if you you know, you know want to, and then you have to go work um, the rest of the day. And then you probably have a watch and stuff like that. So time is very valuable when you're in the military. Um, especially on deployment, because, you know, you want to sit there and you maybe sit down and watch a little bit of TV or something, play some video games um, and stuff like that. But you don't have a lot of time to be able to sit around and, uh, and do a lot of that stuff. So it is tough. And that is one of the things I regret getting out. Um, I don't now I don't because I, mean, I wouldn't have like, you know, my kid and, you know, and, the, you know, my my wife and everything else that I have. Um, but I, I do miss it. And I was like so close from reenlisting. I actually had everything told them to make up all the paperwork for me to reenlist. I was going to reenlist. And then I was just an idiot. And I think something happened. It pissed me off. I'm like, you know what? Screw this. I'm not reenlisting. I'm getting out. And I regret it. Like literally I was home for two weeks and I was like, man, I shouldn't have got out. That was, that was stupid. I should have stayed in, but you know that, but 
you know, especially now that I look back, man, I'd have like four years left and I'd be retired, <laughs> you know, but it is tough. And I understand that. So that is another aspect to it that a lot of people, you know, don't really think about because all those little things can really add up and stack up on top of you. Yeah. And a lot of times when you look back on something, you only remember the, the best parts and the good parts and not so much the bad part. And so I always thought it was funny, like people who hadn't gone to see or hadn't gone to deployment for a while, and then they would, they would come back and they'd be kind of excited for the deployment. And then after a few weeks they'd be miserable again like oh i forgot how much this sucked but um yeah there's some there's some really cool cool parts about it but i don't regret getting out just because of what was going on with my life and um you know what's what's transpired since then and especially i i can't imagine like leaving my kids when they were especially because they're they were that little and you know i was worried like literally if i left for six months i don't think my son would have known who i was when i got back so, you know it was a fairly easy decision i had you know done my time and i was and i was happy with my decision it is weird though seeing friends who continued on and now they're close, like you said, to retirement. You know, they're they're close to retirement or like you know one one guy's a captain of a destroyer out in Japan, stuff like that. So it's pretty cool, like seeing some of the the people that you served with like progress that far. No, for sure. Actually, a guy that I was, we were both, we joined at the same time. Uh, we both got out. We were both E fives, and he. He made chief in seven, seven and a half years, which is almost ridiculous. Like that is about as quick as you possibly can do it. And he's now a senior chief. Um, and yeah, he has four years left. So it's, it, it, it is a little bit crazy to see, uh, to, to watch and kind of that transpire. Most people I started with got out. There's still a few people that I, that I started with that are still in. Um, and like I said, he is, I think he's in, he's in Norfolk right now. So, um, so yeah, but no, um, anyways, well, um, I think that's enough story time for, for, I could tell so much more. There's so much more that happened that, but, uh, I'll, I'll save that for another pod. So I don't throw all my bad shit out <laughs> that we did. It's funny. Like I'm getting, I'm getting older now. So I, I'm like, there's so many stories that I forget. And then something, something happens like, Oh, I remember this really funny story of this thing that happened where, but you know, like, so, okay. So but before we wrap this up, cause we're going to have to have a little fantasy talk before we do this. I mean, this is a fantasy football, you know, show. So, uh, you know, or a fantasy football site. So anyways, let's jump in. Let's do a little bit of fantasy before we wrap this up. Um, so we've, we're just going to kind of ask the same kind of questions, kind of basic stuff, but who is one player you want to come away with in every draft? The guy that I'm getting almost everywhere is Tony Pollard. So there's, there's really no, no guarantee there, but he was, he was actually usable, and, and especially because I'm doing a lot of best ball drafts now, he was actually usable in um, some weeks last year. And the, the he's so cheap now. He's going in, like, the last rounds um, that I, I just love him and I love his upside. But, you know, with that, like, similar guys like Kareem Hunt, um, Alexander Madison, but, yeah, Tony Pollard, I just, I'm just i just looking at my best ball teams, and he's, like, every single one of them. So that's definitely a guy. But, you know, what I was talking about is like I do a bunch of different drafts, so I kind of have different answers depending on what kind of draft it is. So I've done like a couple of dynasty rookie drafts, and the rookie I love, Donovan People Jones. So he's going he's going real late. Um, not many people know him. He was a, a five star recruit coming out of high school. He went to Michigan, and their passing game was just pretty awful. Um, and he was drafted pretty late by Cleveland, so he's he's going pretty late. But I, I kind of wonder if he won't develop in two to three years. So that's that's another guy that I just Almost every time we're doing a rookie draft, I get him super, super late, like fourth, fifth round type guy. Yeah, he's uh, he's free, man. And there's always the – it always seems like Odell was the the talk of possible trade rumors. And I can't exactly remember what Jarvis's contract situation is like. So 
if he just sits there for a year or two, you know what I mean, kind of develops and learns and he can grow into that offense, that's – like you said, he's free. And he, he has enough intrigue around him with, you know, with his uh, – I mean, it, at this point, like it's 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 hard to look and be like, well, he was a five star, so but like th- that does carry some weight, and then obviously he blew up the the combine and everything, so he's he's one who is is definitely worth a stash, especially if you have like a, a taxi squad that you can just kind of sit him there and let him chill for a year. Yeah, I, I looked up the uh, contract situation too, so it looks like Jarvis Landry is there for like I think it's like two or three more years, pretty much. There, there's they're not getting away from that contract. But I think it's next year though, Dell, they can get away from that contract and it's not going to cost them anything. So and so like you said, he's he's just a project. There's no guarantee there, but he's just so cheap now. And he might run into opportunity. But I think a lot of these like rookie wide receivers were looking for immediate production, but you really have to think about like what's gonna happen in in one, two, three years. Um, and you know, give these guys a chance to develop. And there, there's so many good wide receivers in this class. That it, I'm kind of taking like a just a numbers approach, like get as many of them as I can, and just hope a couple of them pan out. Yeah, that makes sense. So, give me your top sleeper for 2020. My guy that I, I really like is uh, Anthony Miller. So he started to come on strong uh, last year. Dealt with some some injuries. Um, but I think it's kind of funny because I don't know if you guys remember this, but going into last year, Deed Westbrook was a popular sleeper because, well, Nick Foles, he targets the slot receiver and all this kind of stuff. And now Nick Foles, he's got a pretty decent shot starting for Chicago. Um, so Anthony Miller's a guy I've been getting quite a bit of too. I like that call. He, uh, dude, he was killing it at the end of the year there. And he's, he's been someone that I've liked since, uh, since he came in his rookie year. So that's, I think it's a really good call. And I think he's going like, 11 12 13th round so he's he's going pretty late even with and normally whenever we see guys like that tear it up at the end of the year that tends to carry on into drafts the following year and for some reason it's just not with him no i agree and i think he's somebody as well that um i think this offense takes a step forward this year with nick Foles. so um i like that call too like he's somebody that we've been kind of waiting to pop and you know sometimes it takes wide receivers we've certainly seen flashes from him and so uh, I think I think this is definitely the year they could put it together. I mean, who else? What's the other target competition there's there anyway outside of Allen Robinson, right? So I think this is definitely the year that he could uh, end up being at least a wide receiver three. So um, and then the last one, I want a ridiculously bold Melcher faceoff prediction for the 2020 Ooh, season. A ridiculously bold one. Well, my my very bold prediction was going to be that Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones finish as top 12 wide receivers, but I don't know if that's ridiculously bold. I guess if I have to go ridiculously, like melt your face off, I say Matthew Stafford finishes as QB1, overall QB1. There we go. He was on pace for 5,000 yards, and I think that was last year. He's, he's certainly got the weapons this year. No, for sure. He Everybody hates Matt Stafford. Every year this is what happens. People are like, ah, oh, it's Matt Stafford. I don't care. You grab him late in drafts. But, like, the dude is solid almost every single year. If you had it, and the pace he was on last year was ridiculous. So, I like that call a lot. And that's that's one reason, you know, liking, you know, guys like Kenny Galladay and Marvin Jones, who is criminally undervalued every single year. He was on pace as well for, what, 11, 1,100 yards and, like, 10 touchdowns, something like that last year. So I, I just saw a tweet about that. I, I wish I could give um, credit to whoever it was, but they, they showed like the 16 game pace for both those wide receivers. They're both over a thousand yards and both, I think it was like both 11 touchdowns, something like that. I saw that too. I, I can't remember who put that out, but the numbers were super similar, like really similar. And there's a massive mm-hmm. difference between where they're going. 
I think Marvin Jones is like ninth, tenth round, and Kenny Galladay is going like the third round. So, yeah, I think people are undervaluing Marvin Jones a little bit. Anyways, all right, I love that call as well. Matt Stafford, QB1. Like, or the QB1 for that. So, that. That had to be like melt your face off. Like, you know, nobody's really talking about that. So that's. I don't think it's actually going to happen, but I think he's going to put in a, a solid season. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think top five upside certainly there with the weapons they have with Galladay and Jones and then TJ Hawkinson we can take a step forward and um, what they've done with the running game. So, no, I, I like that call a lot. So, anyways, so I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I just want to, you know, tell you I really appreciate it and I appreciate your service and, you know, everything that you did. Um, I have a little bit better appreciation for officers now. Not that I hated officers, but, you know, there was uh, always a little bit of a you know a difference in opinion on, on certain things, but hey, you know you learn stuff all the time, and I, I really appreciated you know hearing your story. Yeah, well, I, you know, so thankful that you're starting this up because I think it's pretty awesome to hear people's stories and and what they kind of went through and and um, parts of their their military life and Wounded Warrior Project. That's that's awesome. You're supporting that too. So love that. Yeah, no problem. And I, I I love talking about this stuff, and I like hearing people's stories. So there's uh, a, a lot more to come. Believe me, there's a lot more uh, debauchery that, in my life that I did over those four years. That it, I'm just scratching the surface. Don't want to let it all out in one night. So, anyways, but I really appreciate you coming on. Um, uh, you can find him on Twitter at FF Gouge. I don't know. I was about to say Gage. Um, anyways, Eric, I really appreciate you coming on, and we will see everybody again next week. Peace. Say goodbye. 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.